0: Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 9 of A Little Bit Famous with Ted Morata. I'm really excited about this episode. My guest this week is Aaron Comes, the drummer from The Spin Doctors. He was a huge influence on me as a drummer, and uh, we have a great talk, and you're going to hear it all in just a minute. Uh, but I have a couple of announcements/slash promotions to do right now. Um, first, is you can follow me on Instagram at Ted Morata if you like. Uh, I also have a Facebook page um, for this podcast, so you can go to Facebook and search for a little bit famous, where I post clips and episode announcements. There, uh, I also have a YouTube channel now where I'm posting video content from our episodes. Um, some of it uh video from the show itself that was aired and some of it is bonus um content and outtakes and things like that so you can go to youtube and search a little bit famous with ted morata subscribe to the show click the like button uh and you can see me and my guests having our conversations the last big announcement is that i've decided that i would add to the podcast by announcing next week's guest at the beginning of every show so i will start doing that right now ready Next week's guest on the podcast is Ashley Sophia. She's a really incredible singer. She's based out of Nashville now. Her music is wonderful, her voice is amazing. Um, and I'm really looking forward to having a great talk with her. So in advance, before you uh, get to hear my episode with with Ashley, you can go to Spotify or Apple Music's and Music and look up Ashley Sophia and listen to her great songs, and you'll be ready to roll uh, when you tune in next Wednesday for my episode with Ashley. Final thought before we start episode nine, I have an incredible lineup of guests coming up. I am so excited for you to hear them, and I hope that you're enjoying the show so far. Please subscribe to the show and get notifications about um, episodes coming up. Uh, I think they're really going to blow you away. So, without further ado, here is episode nine of a little bit famous with Ted Murata—that's me—featuring my guest Aaron Comas from the Spin Doctors. <laughs> <laughs> My guest today is Aaron Comes. He's a drummer and one of the founding members of the band Spin Doctors. Since then, he's produced records for other artists. He's worked as a session drummer on many records. And the Spin Doctors are currently working on material for a new record, uh, which I assume will be out soon. Is
1: that true, Aaron? Well, we're just in the beginning phases of it. So, you know, Hopefully, uh, we do intend on having a record out sometime next year. Okay, great.
0: So, Aaron, welcome to the podcast. I'm truly honored to, to have you on the show.
1: Thanks, Ted. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Um, so I guess I, I, I want to just say at the beginning, um, you know, I am, I am a, a huge admirer of your playing. I'll, I'll just fanboy out for just a second, and then we can move on. Um, I first heard you guys when I was in college. It was probably... Um, 1991 or 92 or somewhere around there, your name had been floating around, um, and I snuck into a little bar in Albany, New York, called Bogies um, to see you guys play. And uh, I just immediately was drawn to your playing, and uh, you know, like you played to me as a drummer like no one else I'd ever seen before. And I, I thought your style was unique, um, and and I particularly loved the sound of your drums the sound of the toms and, and, and you know everything just sounded beautiful to me and um, both on recordings and also live. And I do have to ask you real quick, this is a bit of a gear nerd question, but what kind of a drum set were you playing back then in the early
1: 90s? Well, first of all, thanks for the kind words. I appreciate that. Yeah, um, yeah back then I was playing Brady drums. Okay, that's what I thought. And I, you know, I still play them quite a bit. I'm a Yamaha endorser, so that's my main uh, company that I use. But I still ha- I have a really large collection of Brady snare drums and a couple of their kits. But on like uh, on all those early Spin Doctors records and, and on those early tours like what you're referring to, like the Horde tour and if you saw us at Bogeys and all that for that yeah. period, I had my Brady kit, which I bought at Manny's in 1990. Right after the Spin Doctors got our record deal with Epic Records, we finally had a little bit of money to buy some new gear. So we all went out and bought new gear. And I was sort of looking for, you know, just something a little different. I was thinking, ah, maybe I'll get a sonar kit or, you know, something. I had my Yamaha recording series, um, which I still have. Actually, I'm actually using that kit again on the road. It's a black like Steve Gadd kit. I've been Um, seeing
0: it. I've been seeing the video.
1: Yeah, great drums. The videos, so they, yeah. They, they made a new one, which is which are awesome as well, which I have. But anyway, um, so at the time I was looking for something different and I went up to Manny's and they had just gotten these drums in from Australia called Brady Drums. Mm-hmm. And um they were just had a real I was just really drawn to them. I thought they had a really unique tone. And I got this kit. And um that was those were the drums that I was playing at the time and mm-hmm. on all those early Spin Doctors records as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think the thing, well, there were many things about your playing that, that you know, kind of mesmerized me, really. I mean, I, I go, I've seen a lot of bands play, and as a drummer, I obviously do pay some attention to the drummer, and I'm kind of watching the drummer. But I think for you in particular, I couldn't take my eyes off you while you were playing. I was just so impressed with with some of the things that you were doing. You know, as a, I'm, a ch- I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, you know, and, and the music of the 70s and 80s was a lot of kind of gated drums, a lot yeah. of, uh, you know, gated reverb, and, and especially in the 80s, you know. And one thing you were really not hearing in, on those uh, songs was nuance uh, or things like ghost notes. And yeah. so when I first saw you play, and, and many, many times I saw you guys play afterward, that was the thing that really caught my ear was your, your finesse. And, and and the ghost note thing was a really big thing. And that wasn't, that was really one of the biggest influences on me and my playing was that I began to cultivate, you know, the use of ghost notes when I was playing because of, of, of seeing you and, um, I know now the, from what i've at least from what I've seen in the videos that you've been playing basically playing a four piece kit for a while now. When did you transition into playing a a smaller kit
1: yeah I mean I guess I've always sort of experimented with different size kits, but i mean yeah. i you know back then I always had two toms up front you know, and either one or two floor toms and uh you know you know you that's just what I was into then I was you know. I think we all generally have bigger kits when we're younger. I mean, look, when I was when I was thirteen, I had the Neil Perk kit I had six. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and over yeah. time I just sort of found that I didn't need as much. And I, I sort of found that like I the drums sounded better in the studio sometimes if there weren't as many of them ringing. And I just, you know, I just just as time has gone on, I just the way I play, the way my style has developed over the years, the four piece just works for me. But yeah, back yeah. then, you know, that was the, that was what I was using. And obviously, if you listen to, you know, like pocket full of kryptonite record, you can hear there's some films that go all the way around the toms and stuff. Yeah, uh, but it was just uh, a gradual transition to a sort of a smaller kit, you know. Uh-huh.
0: You, you know, it's kind of funny is I, I I've gone back and forth because when I I got my first real kit, I had like a, you know, somewhat of a garage band kit for a while when we first started touring and then. Uh, we were in, doing a show out in Boulder, Colorado, and I walked into um, Sandy's drum shop in Boulder and there was a, a set of premier Signias, you know, brand new, beautiful, you know, English made maple drums. And I bought them and they had a, they came with a bunch of Toms. So all of a sudden for, for a year or so, I was touring with all the Toms. Yeah. And then being a hard road dog kind of band, I, I, I realized, you know, this is, this is way more work than it needs to be, and for the for the next eight plus years, nine years, I toured with just a four piece, and 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 did that for years and years after we got off the road. Uh, you know, at the level that we were playing before, but now when I'm back in my in my studio in my home, I've gone back to having more toms out just to have more kind of flavor approaches. Um, and uh, I didn't mean to turn this into a just like drum talk 101, but I figured I'd get some of
1: this out of the way in the, in the beginning. Yeah, I, mean, it's <laughs> fun. I mean, I like the, my, my basic standard setup now is like, you know, four piece, three cymbals. Hi, yeah. Very simple. Yeah. But, you know, look, sometimes it's nice to if you add a tom or you add something, it'll make you play things that you wouldn't normally play. So like from a creative point of view, switching up the rig could be a really effective thing to do just to come up with something different. Cause like for me, I'm so used to playing a four piece. As soon as I put another Tom up or it's going to make me do some different stuff that I wouldn't normally do. So that, that can yeah. be a real, that can be a really cool thing. But back then, you know, I mean, I mean, I was coming when I think about like when the spin doctors formed, which was 1988, right. When I moved to New York, and by the time you saw us, it was probably sounds like it was around 90 or 91. Yeah. Uh, and when we went in the studio it was around 91. You know i was coming out of drummers like the guys that i was that were my real heroes at the time you know were like guys like steve gadd you know mm-hmm. and uh, look at his kid i mean he had like two toms mm-hmm. and two floor toms so you know that's that's where that kind of came from or vinnie call even bernard purdy who you know when i listen back to those records now purdy's probably my biggest influence in a lot of ways and i and and, and i really hear it when i go back because at the time, not only do I just lo- I've always loved his playing, I was actually studying with him in New York City. I was going to mention I, I had I had read that. What, what what was that experience like for you? It was great. It was right when I moved to New York in '88. I was going to the New School and I I studied with Bernard Purdy that whole year. So and and Purdie also I mean he played anything he would play anything. But I would see him and he he'd have two toms a lot of times you know. And I remember he I remember he would do he was everything about his playing was just so groove oriented one thing i learned about party just from being able to sit and watch him up close go see going to see him at gigs or he would do things at the school you know outside of our own lessons i remember he would do these fills he would be grooving along and he would just do the simplest fill you know he'd just be like he would just do like these straight eighth note fills around the tons that just were totally inside of the pocket and I remember it was so, it influenced me so much. When I go back and I I don't listen to those old records that often, but every now and then I'll hear something on the radio or maybe we'll do a song we haven't done in 20 years. So I got to go back and listen to it. And recently I, I went and listened to some stuff and it really occurred to me, I was like, wow, man, you know, I really hear like the Purdy influence here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, it makes sense because I was, you know, sitting like, a, Right next to him in lessons, you know, and yeah. and this guy was like a hero. So, and he also really helped me with the with the ghost note thing, which I was developing at the time. Yeah, and uh, he's like the king of that. Yeah. So, yep. um, so anyway, but so you know, the setup came really just from like those guys that I was really into at the time, and then uh, you know, it, it again it just shrunk from there yeah but at one yeah. point it got really big i remember as the band started touring and doing bigger shows and we had a big road crew i remember you know my my kit peaked out at one point you know i remember it was like i think i had like you know two toms up front i think i might have had like three floor toms an extra snare i had like a couple galls i mean i had like it was yeah. just all kinds there was like cowbells there was all kinds of fun stuff up there <laughs> and i kind of went from that to like okay that's it four piece yeah <laughs> you know? yeah i I, I get it come up with cool stuff you know mixing it up you know
0: (laughs) yeah um i i was just gonna say um i forgot to mention which i meant to and i forgot but but you know bernard purdy and i would say steely dan is was was kind of the exception musically when it came to drums uh from what i was describing about the music of the 70s and the 80s where you were you were not really hearing very much nuance in the drums or they were covered in blankets and you know uh, the tea towels and things like that um if not gated but but bernard had that thing uh, you know the the classic hurdy shuffle thing on a tune like babylon sisters or or home at last or whatever where you could hear those little nuances even a song like peg um uh with rick marotta where you can hear no relation by the way but where rick marotta was you know you could get you can hear those little nuances and and um I always loved that. I always wondered why did why were they even before I knew anything about any of it. I was I had no experience in a studio or anything. I was just a kid. I always used to think, why are they sort of sucking the life out of the drums, and then yeah. trying to put it back artificially through reverbs and you know white noise samples and things like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's like anything. Every decade, you know, there's the the latest technology that comes out, and people use it in the studio, and and, and something becomes. Popular and then everybody sort of jumps on that bandwagon, you know. So, I mean, I was never a big fan of that stuff in the 80s. I mean, I I definitely um, came from more of, you know, the music that I grew up listening to was more of, as far as rock, was like from the 60s and 70s, and some stuff from the 80s, but I I wasn't a big fan of that. But it's funny because now I actually, a lot of that stuff that really annoyed me back then, I actually really like now. There's so much, like, there's a lot of, a ton of personality in the 80s. You know, yeah, um, oh my god, I know what yeah. you mean, the 80s. And there's some great stuff. I mean, like the Phil Collins thing, and that's a great example of like using that stuff in a really cool way. But I definitely wasn't into it and the band wasn't into it. So when we were when we were going in the studio to make Pocket Full of Kryptonite, I mean this is like early nineties. So it was yeah. like you know, there was still a lot of that you still had people in the industry that were trying to copy the eighties the sound, you know. Mm-hmm. And, but we had moved on. I think most of the, and you look at all the artists that actually seemed to do well, were the ones that stuck to their guns and did their own thing. And there was sort of a new sound that, that emerged in the early 90s, you know. Um, that was It was more organic. But I can tell you, like, when we went in the studio, like, here's a great example. I love telling this story. You know, when we, when we, we were at the power station in New York City, and we were doing, I remember when we were cutting Two Princes, and, um, they were really trying to get me to play like i had my brady my brady set up mm-hmm. and i had i knew that i wanted to play this brady piccolo snare on that song but they were really trying to get me to play a really big deep ludwig mm. and they wanted to have this massive room sound they were they were sort of still sort of going after that 80s thing just sort of you know i think a lot of people think well this is what you're supposed to do this is these were if you look at the hit songs you know and we were like no this we're not we don't want to do that it's not we have our own sound you know and like mm-hmm. i'm i have my own sound and it's part of the band sound and and i i stuck to my guns and the band members you know chris and eric and mark everybody stuck with me and we spent like and this was still when people were spending like five hours on a snare sound yeah right it was that world <laughs> that world still existed it doesn't really exist anymore people realize like. You know, if you can't get a, a drum to sound good pretty quick, then there's something wrong. You know. Yeah. Back yeah. then, people would spend all day on drum sounds. You know. Mm-hmm. And so we literally spent a good part of the day, you know, on this snare drum shit. You know. And finally, we won. And you know, <laughs> we got our awesome. way. And and it's a good thing we did. Or who yeah. knows? You no, know, I mean, I can't really imagine Two Princes with a big, deep, gated Ludwig snare. Oh yeah. But um, and even even when we were mixing, I remember it was sort of like this. Push pull between, like, and I don't want to name any names, and like, everybody, the, the producers and the engineers on that record, I, I'm so grateful for them because ultimately the sound that we got on that record is so great. And I and mm-hmm. people always comment on how much they like my drum sound, and I, I love They're the huge. They're, They're huge. Great. It's yeah. a good balance between sort of this big sound with a lot of room, but there's also an organic quality, and you can yes. hear all the notes. But like, you know, it was a, it was a it was a it was sort of a collaboration between like the producers and engineers really would all they would always crank the room and the reverb real high. And then I would come over and I'd turn it down. You know, <laughs> if I had my way, it would have been really dry. And if they had their way, it would have been really wet. But ultimately, between sort of the I don't want to say fighting, but between our disagreement of what they wanted and what I wanted, where we ended up was was just perfect you know what i mean yeah, so I'm really, i agree really grateful. i'm really grateful to that but um you know had we had we sort of listened to what really all along with us from the from from the sound to the sort of decision making with touring and career moves you know had we listened to the record company that we would have not gotten anywhere like we right. really stuck really stuck to our, i don't think a lot of people realize that about us i mean a lot of people are like oh the spin doctors they. You know you have a big hit people are like oh they sold out or they were like, right. you know whatever it's just the that's right. sort of the obvious thing to say yeah but the truth is like we really really were a band that like stuck to our guns we were like a real self-made machine we worked really hard and had we listened to what they wanted us to do that record would have never ever taken off because yeah they wanted us to come home off the road and they didn't you know they really didn't believe in the record um like a year in you know, we were doing very well, um, just based on our own touring. And um, I'll never forget the record company. We had a meeting, and they were like, "Okay, you, got, you know, you guys really don't have any image. You need some tattoos. <laughs> you, know, mm. you, you know, you know, there's no there's, there's no hits on this record. Um, it's not happening. The record's dead. Come back and make another record." And we were like, "You know, I got to tell you, I mean, we're we're actually out there in our van, and we're like packing clubs around the country." We're, we're making money, no thanks to you guys at all. We're not taking any of your money. We're a self-made machine. We, we, we're feeling this buzz out there. Maybe you should consider like helping us a little bit with some promo and maybe maybe why not like release Jimmy Olsen blues or Little Miss Roll or Two Princes, you know, they're like, ah, nah, 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 So we decided between uh, amongst ourselves and our manager, that we were going to just go back on the road and we felt like some spark you know things were, were moving mm-hmm. regardless of whether the record was a hit or not things were really growing and building we didn't want to like sort of kill that momentum at the time and it, you know we we did that and then ultimately some radio picked up our music on their own and they uh, and then epics shortly thereafter decided to go for it and then the thing really blew up but yeah you know it's it's sort of like i think it i'm telling this i've told this story a lot but i I like to tell it because i think it's just important for whatever you're doing whether you're in a band or you're a solo artist or you're just a musician you know it's important to like stick to your own guns develop your own style don't feel that you have to follow the trends and be like everybody else because that rarely gets you anywhere i think that's the rabbit hole that i've just seen so many people go down i saw so many bands go down that rabbit hole in the 90s trying yeah. to be grunge, trying to be grunge like everybody was like one minute you're one thing and the next minute you're trying to do what's popular and it rarely works and same thing for if you're just like a speaking drummers you know um we all are influenced greatly by our heroes i mean i sure am i mean i'm yeah i roll my own style being a combination of all the people i love and that continues to this day but ultimately you gotta try. You gotta, you know, find your own voice because that's what's gonna set you apart. I mean, you know, the world doesn't need another Steve Gadd. We got Gadd. He's he's yeah. the best. Yeah. You know and I mean, You're like, you know, you take you take these influences and put them into your stew, and hopefully it comes out on your your own way. But it's just important, I think, to to not get caught up in that rabbit hole of trying to be somebody else or something else or always. Yeah. Taking the advice of the people that think they know what's best for you because they probably don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh
0: man, I have a million questions from from what you just said. Um, but you know, I want one of the things is um, uh, you know when I was a kid, uh, at least when I started playing drums, of course I was influenced initially by people like Neil Peart and some others, um, and and Bonham, John Bonham for sure. And and one of the things that I always loved about Bonham that I feel like he really doesn't get much credit for is that he had finesse. You know, people always say like, oh, he's so bombastic and stuff. And I'm like, ah, I mean, but but he's got some he's got some taste. He really does the way he plays, you know, and, oh, cool. uh, and
1: yeah, part, you know, I mean, I think I like a lot of the rock, a lot of the sort of heavy metal drummers in the 80s. They they totally took the Bonham school, but they left out all the finesse and all the yeah. funk and groove. And it was just yeah. the heavy the heavy part of what he did. But you're absolutely right. He had all that finesse and uh and funk and groove and that's what just made him so incredible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They kept the two and four part of it. Um and left out all those other, you know, all those other little cool details from 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 what what Bonham did. And I definitely I took those. You know, that that was a big influence, the, not the not the sort of smashy part of it, even though I loved hearing him do that, but but more of those little subtle things, you know, I mean, yeah. a tune like uh, Fool in the Rain or something, you know, there's so much I mean, great stuff going on there with that, with that song, as far as what Bonham's playing.
1: Yeah, I mean, incredible I'm the, as well for me. I mean, he's one of my very biggest influences to this day i mean you know anytime you need to sort of hit that certain thing you just channel bottom and it's so helpful i mean he he you know he's he's the he's the greatest rock drummer ever i mean there's there's no question the guy's just it's amazing it's really just kind of mind-boggling
0: yeah yeah i mean i agree um and, and i i i could say i i i'm curious to ask you it seems like kind of a you know worn out question to ask a drummer you know what were your influences but since we're talking about it if someone just looked at me and said, what are, what are your top three influences? I would say Bonham, um, I, uh, Peter Erskine, uh, mostly because of when I saw them, I saw Steely Dan when they fr- first came back on tour in the early nineties and, and Erskine was playing drums with them. And the way he approached the drums on those shows yeah, really transformed my playing, you know, in terms of me, me coming to realize, like as a tw- 19, 20 year old kid, um, I don't ha- I can actually do less. And in a lot of cases, I probably should do less as a drummer. Um, that I, I can I can speak the language of drums and most importantly, I can serve the song uh, without having to do all these fills and things that I was doing because I was you know young and and uh, hadn't really matured as a drummer. And then you, you know, um, and one of the things that I really, I mean, I mentioned the the, the the ghost notes, but the other thing that I really developed as a drummer, which took some practice was, you know, the way that you use variations of 16th note patterns on the kick drum. You know, that that groove you're playing, some other drummer might have just done a two and four thing. Um, but you added those little kick drum hits that that really make that song move in, mm-hmm. a, in a wonderful way. And I just always, is that something that particular thing is that something that you picked up from someone else or is that something you
1: just started to develop you know it's so hard to pinpoint where you come up with things you know, yeah people do that sometimes but i the one thing i can tell you is that you know the spin doctors were gigging like five nights a week in new york city you know we weren't and and, and uh, there were a lot of bands doing that at the time blues traveler Godfrey Wine, uh, the authority you know joan osborne there was a whole scene of sort of these groups that weren't so wrapped up with getting a record deal, um, but that we were just trying to like make a living and play gigs, and that's kind of yeah. what we were doing. And you know, we we a lot. Most of those bands did end up getting a record deal, but it was it wasn't so much because they were trying. It was more just because a scene was created and and the industry sort of found us. But the with the, with the Spin Doctors in particular, I mean, you know, our crowd used to really dance. It was like yeah. playing these gigs. I they saw were, you
0: guys. I saw you guys at Wetlands, by the way. It yeah, was wild.
1: I it was dance. So I always felt it was my job to keep them dancing. You know, it's like I, I would look out in the crowd. And if if people weren't dancing, I'm like, well, I'm not doing something right. So I think I would construct some of my rhythms and grooves just based on that sort of like looking out of the crowd and like. So maybe, you know, I'm thinking about it like, you know, maybe those extra little beats on the bass drum just help get people moving or something, mm-hmm. you know, um, I can't really pinpoint it to any particular drummer. I mean, obviously, the. You know, there's a lot of drummers that I can pinpoint my style. Like I said, Purdy and Gad and so many people. Bonham, for sure. Um, but you know, I, I definitely like sort of cons- all our music was sort of constructed on the stage at shows. You know, even though we might get together and rehearse and write and learn a new song, I mean, we would learn it and then we would go up out. You know, we'd play it a hundred times that year because mm-hmm. we were doing so many shows. So. It was really an on-the-job sort of situation coming up with parts and really a great way to figure out what works in front of an audience you know yeah um so okay so now that we're, we're talking
0: about wetlands this brings up a whole bunch of questions that i've that i have for you um so you were but you were you're not from new york city you were born in, in arizona is that correct
1: i was born in arizona but i grew up in dallas texas
0: okay okay maybe we can talk about that a little bit i'm curious to know what you're what you you know actually why don't we do that first and then we'll, we'll back up and talk about that for a minute um yeah so you well, so i was go just ahead. gonna say so you grew up in dallas and and this is a question that i i'm always curious to know when it comes to anybody whatever instrument that they play or whatever their art is even if it's not music which is what what was it that drew you to that particular instrument of all of the uh, available options. And I, I know that you play other instruments. You're, you know, you're a multi-instrumentalist, um, but it does seem like your well, your career and, and, and you know, a lot of aspects of your life were kind of defined by your talent as a drummer and your success as a drummer. So do you have a particular love for the drums that goes, extends far beyond the other instruments that you play what was it that made you want to play the drums of, of all things?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm a drummer first and foremost. I mean, I, I picked up other instruments just because they were around, and I always had a desire to play other instruments. It, was, it, it wasn't it was that difficult for me for some reason. You know, I, I, I just sort of gravitated towards the guitar. Um, I, my first instrument was piano. I played classical piano when I was like five or six until around eight or nine and then I kind of lost interest and you know I just decided I wanted to play drums mm-hmm. and so I asked my I can't even remember exactly why I mean I know we had these we used to have these two little bongo drums that my uncle gave us and me and my brother would sort of do little concerts and jam around and I was just like yeah I want to take I want to take drum lessons so I told my parents and they called up the local music store Brook Mays in Dallas and found me a teacher and it was really just a really lucky break because the teacher whose name was Jack Iden, was just incredible. And he, you know, from day one, that's why I hold my drumsticks traditional grip, is because he taught me how to hold the sticks like that. Yeah. So I spent my first two years just only doing um, rudiments and reading on a practice pad or a snare drum. He would not allow me to get a drum set for two years. Yeah. Which was, he used to piss me off, but it was- Yeah, right, right. yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I was off to a good start, you know, with the right teacher, and I always had really great teachers all through my life in Dallas. And also was lucky enough to have really great music programs in all the schools I went to. You know, I was playing in a in a big band in junior high school. I did one year of marching band, and then I went to a place called the Arts Magnet High School for my tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade year, which is a really really great arts school. It's kind of like Laguardia here in New York. Um, and I was doing music half the day, and I was playing in a small combo, I was playing in big band, symphony orchestra, music theory, and I had all these great musician friends, so we'd be jamming after school, and I'd be taking private lessons. I had a great private uh, teacher named uh, Henry Oxtell, who was the head uh, drum teacher up at North Texas State University, so I was just lucky to be like, somebody that had great teachers and great music programs growing up and i was super motivated i mean i knew like there was no question in my mind from a very early age that i was going to be a professional musician you know mm. um, and that's really remember, interesting yeah i mean uh, i remember i remember uh, another thing i like to tell when people ask is um i'll never forget t- i used to take a bus to school in the seventh grade i went to walker middle school and my friend Ralph Time, he was a year older, he was also a drummer, I remember we were walking off the bus and he asked me, he said, well, what do you, you, know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I'm 12 and I'm in seventh grade. And I said, I'm gonna be a professional musician. And I remember saying it, but I, there was like, I meant it. It wasn't like I was just saying like, I'm gonna be a rock star, I'm gonna be like a whatever. You know, I, it, it wasn't about that at all. It was like, I, I knew exactly what I wanted to do and uh, you know, I loved it, and I was really motivated. So I really always put in a lot of work and a lot of time and effort from a really young age, which continues to this day. I mean, I'm still like an avid practitioner, and uh, you know. So I think. Um, but getting back to your question about Dallas, it was a really great place to grow up musically. Also, I think it, you know, was a cool influence on my playing because. You know there's a really good like uh texas blues scene down there so i was doing a lot of blues mm-hmm. gigs and i was actually playing in a blues band on bass uh, as well as drums i also did a lot of jazz gigs i was in rock bands but i think like you know you study the music around different parts of the world and even in different parts of the country and there's different sort of feels you know new york city is known for sort of that edge you know you yeah. listen to you listen to like a lot of the classic jazz records that remain in New York. There's that edge there. And then the West Coast is known for a little more of a laid back thing. And then the South, you know, is also laid back. And Texas and Oklahoma and New Orleans, that whole pocket, you know, everything tends to be a little more laid back behind the beat. And I've always sort of been the kind of drummer that plays a little more, you know, behind the beat. I don't like I don't like to push too much. Um, And when I came to New York, all of a sudden it was different for me because a lot of the musicians up here were like, there's this energy and like mm-hmm. even within the guys and the spin doctors, you know, Eric and Mark, Mark's a bass player from who grew up in the Bronx, you know, hundred percent funk. Mm-hmm. He he never heard of Led Zeppelin or the stones or any of those bands. <laughs> strictly from the funk and yeah. he had this real edge in his plane. And Eric, you know, was from the east coast and canada and he also real sort of rock blues school also a real edgy player so these mm-hmm. guys they tended to sort of sit more on top of the beat and i would sit more behind the beat and chris our singer really is always just he's got a great time and he's always just sort of like dead in the middle like he he really locks in with me really well um mm-hmm. but it was interesting because we had this sort of push pull on our groove and it you know I pulled them back, they pulled me forward, you find that happy medium. Yeah. But, but the Texas thing definitely, um, to this day, I mean, it's definitely something that is a big part of my sort of pocket, I think, you know? Yeah.
0: What, how old were you when you came to New York?
1: Well, right after, I graduated high school in 86 and I did one year at Berkeley in Boston. I had a great year at Berkeley. And then I moved back to Dallas for a year and just played gigs around town. And then I moved up to New York in 88.
0: OK, OK. So, I mean, really, things happened pretty fast by th- when you got to New York City. And I mean, in the cosmic sense, you know, um, yeah. you, you guys you guys came together right around that time, right? I mean, we, I been- met
1: I met Chris and Eric at, at the new. I was going to the new school as yeah. were Chris and Eric. And I met those guys like about a month after I had been here. You know, Eric, yeah. Eric had no kn- Eric knew Chris and they were putting a band together and Eric heard me and asked me if I was interested. And this all happened like pretty much right when I moved to town. So, yeah, it was quickly, you know, the the band, the first sort of incarnations of the band started, you know, that fall of 88.
0: Yeah. Okay. so now now there's some sort of bigger, bigger questions um, having to do with the scene. And from my perspective and from my experience, you know, I, I um First of all, i did, at seven years old, I may have dreamed about becoming a professional musician, but I never told anyone that um It wasn't until I was like eighteen years old that I said out loud, "This is what I'm gonna do." But when I did get into this band uh called Ominous C- Pods, we were we are a jam band and when as we started to get on the road and tour and do all those kinds of things we we sort of understood that there was a a second wave happening. That was the phrase that was used a lot. You know, you had, you had the Grateful Dead, the grandfathers up there on the top. And then there was this second wave starting to emerge. And I think the first horde tour is a great example of, of the, you know, the kind of population of the second wave. You know, if, if I remember correctly, that when I saw the, that first horde tour, it was you guys and it was Blues Traveler and Fish and Widespread Panic and Aquarium Rescue Unit. And to us, that was a group of bands who had started to begin to establish themselves uh, on this circuit that really hadn't quite it was still kind of zygotic. You know, there was this stuff happening and, and but there was a ton of energy and buzz about it, especially the New York music scene um, for us as a band that was playing literally every dive bar, you know, from from the Nightingale bar to McGovern's to Desmond's to some you know, West End gate up, on, you know all over town but dreaming and dreaming of the day that we could finally get into wetlands you know and it was like the biggest deal when we started headlining the wetlands but we all we we understood you guys to be at the at the you know we were sort of driving puttering slowly maybe to get to the airport you guys were on the runway and and there was a lot happening for you guys did you did you guys or did you personally and or did you and the rest of the members of the band were you comfortable being in part of of what was seemingly a new jam band scene or community? Did you were you comfortable being identified? Because you definitely did jam. I mean, you guys used to 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 jam, you know, a lot and and, and were great at it. Um, but did you feel OK or comfortable in that world?
1: yeah I mean you know we we were already had this strong scene in New York City like with Blues Traveler you know we were like we played tons of gigs with them we were all really good friends so you know doing anything with them just felt completely natural um and the whole idea of the horde tour because we all kind of we all got up got together and came up with this idea the idea was like all the bands that were on that first tour that you named, the thing that we all shared in common, even more than the music, was sort of the attitude. Like we were, we were touring bands. We were self sufficient. We were, um, we were doing different set lists. We were stretching out our songs, um, but our music all sounded really different. I mean, we don't sound anything yeah. like Fish. Or, no. You know, Everybody, it was a great musical bill because, although we shared a lot of same qualities, there was really very different types of bands. But the idea was like all these bands are doing well, but if we all get ourselves together, let's go out this summer and play really big venues, mm-hmm. and that, and it worked, you know. And um, but you know, then it, like 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 always, you know, media starts naming things. You know, mm-hmm. I remember they had that they had that article in Rolling Stone that, that was sort of focused on us, Fish and Blues Traveler. I think it was right before the horde and they they labeled it neo hippie movement you know right yeah yeah yeah. we just just all laughed at it we were like yeah you know it's like you know that's just what people do they put a name on something neo hippie what the hell is that you know yeah 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 so whatever and you know i mean we've been called so many things you know it's like I, I never paid attention to it but yeah i mean it was cool to be part of that uh, it was a it was an exciting time and you felt like something new was happening and it was sort of based in like something that had happened before like with the grateful dead you know and i, and I grew up being a big dead fan so mm-hmm. to have any sort of association with that felt pretty cool mm-hmm. um but we never paid attention to labels and and i and you know i think um you know musically I don't know how you describe this. I mean, again, we we've been called so many different things that make really no sense. I mean, so it's like, right? You know, one hand, people are like they're the new Grateful Dead, and the other re- article says, oh, they they're the new Steve Miller, and then it's like the you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, whatever. We're, we're yes. us, yeah. So, well, you I never really pay much attention, but but that was a great great time, and the Horde tour in particular was a really 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 fun tour. I think yeah, I, I think any of those bands this day would say that. We'd all had a really good time you know mm-hmm. yeah i mean I, I felt i
0: felt it as an audience member and uh you know it was it was it, i saw you guys in syracuse for one of the for the first on uh, that first horde tour and it seemed like i mean this was years ago you know but it seemed like it was like three months later <laughs> that you guys went from playing a place like bogeys in albany to playing the palace in all the Palace Theater in Albany, and you know, it felt like things were moving really fast to me as an observer. I don't know how it felt for you guys, but
1: well, they were. And that, you know, it's interesting because the Horde tour, you know, and we kind of arranged we we switched the the order of when all the bands would play based on sort of regions and people's numbers in those regions so like as we got up up to the east coast you know our we were a little higher on the bill down south you had like widespread panic on the top of the bill or fish or whatever but um what was interesting was right in the middle of that tour little miss can started to like kind of became a hit like they they'd finally you know started pushing us on radio and so little miss was blowing up on the radio and our record started to chart and like Everything like started to become sort of mainstream during Horde. And it was interesting because here we are on this like you know hippie festival, right, Deadhead. Right, 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 nobody's interested in hit songs on this thing. And we were part of that scene, but right smack in the middle of that tour, our records blowing up. So it was yeah. kind of it was kind of interesting. And you know, you know, like everybody on the on the tour was happy for us, but it was kind of like it almost went against what the tour was about too. It was, sure. And, and that was kind of like, and then that was our blessing and curse, you know. For the next couple of years, was you know things just blew up, and um, and it was great, but we were sort of fighting this balance between like, oh, here's like this sort of horde, deadheadish type fan, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, oh shit! But then there's like a ten year old with his dad who heard us on MTV, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. like, and you know those people don't like each other, you know. So it was it was it was wild, but you know it enabled us to really blow up really big. But it was sort of like a push pull of like well, who are these guys? You know?
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I, I understand. I get that. And I've taught, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of bands and you know, we played with a ton of bands that, that kind of went through this. It was a weird time because there was like on some level being in a jam band could, could sometimes work against you because it was, it was also the time that Nirvana and Pearl jam and all these other bands were blowing up. Um, uh, but at the same time, the way that you guys did it and the way that other bands were doing it and the way we did it was to just try to be a really damn good live band, get some word of mouth going, get people to show up without any of the label support or any of that nonsense, but just to just work your way up and become self-sustaining as you described it. And uh, and some of the bands, I mean, you guys were an example that we all wa- we watched in real time. You know, you got signed and then bang, bang, bang. Um, but some other bands of our you know in our universe got signed and it it kind of backfired in a in a big way you know they alienated their fans and on and on and on and on or they got signed and then the label didn't do anything with them uh which was
1: pretty common too yeah it's tough i mean again that 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 happened to us it's just it's just that we stuck to our guns and eventually they they woke up and did do something you know but i mean You know, I think, you know, again, it's like we we didn't change our whole, everything we did before we had a record deal or a record out, we just pretty much stuck to that program, even when the record came out, which was like tour, 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 play great shows, keep coming back, you know, build up a fan base. And that's what we did. I think sometimes people make the mistake they get a record deal and they just think, oh, now it's just all about having a hit or whatever. And so they maybe they don't do as many shows or they're doing the wrong kinds of shows. I mean, I don't really know. You know, it's Mm -hmm. listen, man. I mean, it's we're we're, there's a lot of luck involved with having a hit record. I mean, we could have easily not been having this conversation right now. There's plenty of bands that deserve all that. It's just the stars just really have to align in so many ways and. And, you know, and I mean, you got to be smart and stick to your guns, but it's, it's also and you have to have good songs and a good band and good record and good show. There's all that stuff that we can control, but there's a lot of stuff that you can't control that really things have to come together. And it's just it, it's rare that they do. So it's not mm-hmm. like I, I, you know, I mean, I, I definitely feel fortunate, you know, that we were able to achieve that for sure. I think that's, you know, it's, it's a combination of a lot of things.
0: Yeah, and as as the sort of legend is told um, from 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 my where I live, which is in sort of the capital region of 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 New York State, um, and one of the radio stations that I used to listen to and still listen to all the time is a station out of Manchester, Vermont called one hundred two point seven WEQX and okay there's the thumbs up radio, because
1: we owe it all to them
0: okay because that's that's the that's what i always heard and i can tell you that i used to listen to the station all the time and all of a sudden you guys were getting played on that radio station all the time and then things started happening and i had always heard that eqx was sort of like the magic radio station that really kind of believed in you guys and 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 made some and 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 did a lot to to, to help you guys move up
1: you know Jim McGwen was the guy at WEQX and they this was a this was shortly after we had that meeting with Epic and decided that we were going to stick to the go back on the road and not make another record yet. Jim McGwen at EQX started playing Little Miss Camberon. This was back when you could just play a song, you know, everything's yeah. so programmed now. Um and they put Little Miss Camberon on their playlist, on their rotation and the song went to number 1. I mean you you were there, so you remember yeah. probably all of sudden your head oh, you yeah start. And, and so Jim McGuinn wrote a letter to Richard Griffiths, who was the head of Epic Records at the time, and said, you know, this song is doing so well on our station, you would be insane not to release this song as a real single. This, rec- this, band, this record should be at least gold. You know, this is, this is ridiculous. And that's exactly what did it. That letter and the, and the proof that this song went to number one on WEQX and then they released Little Miss. They started at rock radio and then we did the video and then it went to pop radio and it, you know, just blew up. And it was, mm-hmm. it's exactly that though. That was like, that was the thing that sort of lit the, you know, lit the fire for us.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think about, I mean, this is something I'm, I'm, I'm definitely curious to hear your thoughts on this, but, um, the, all of the little micro moments that happen, you know, the fact that you decided to move to New York, um, that you met this very particular group of people, Chris and Eric, you know, um, and um, you 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 started to sort of connect, and then you guys formed this band that is this incredible band, and you got your tour. I don't know, I'm you know all of those little moments that could have not gone either way. That you know, and, and to get to what you were saying about that we wouldn't be even having this conversation right now. Um, it's just it's always amazing to me how how life works like that
1: that's life right it's like you yeah. can take one little element in your life even if it's something that happens one day and uh it can change everything <laughs> you yeah. know that's just yeah. the way the world is right it's, it, i mean i think about that sometimes too you know and uh, and look you know i've been a i'm happy with the way it turned out i feel lucky i'm psyched that uh i'm in the spin doctors and you've had our ups and downs but it's been great i'm grateful and we're together all four members going strong it's awesome I really appreciate it but you know like we we're saying before i mean I've, I've i've been dedicated to being as best of a musician as i can and making a living at it since i was a kid so i was gonna i was gonna do something you know i mean yeah. I'd, be, I'd be i'd be doing something else if it wasn't for the band but i'm i'm real grateful with how it turned out of course sometimes i wonder shit, should i wonder what would have happened if i wouldn't have met those guys you know yeah yeah um, Cause who knows? But like, I'm glad I did, and it, you know, and it's uh, it is interesting though. That's that's just the way the world works, right? You, you know, one little, ch- ch- you know, chance meeting, and you know, something cool happens.
0: Yeah, they they become, in a way, become destiny. Um, I'm not a believer in fate, but I believe that you know we make choices, and they have consequences, and some of those consequences can alter the course of your life, and and that
1: that certainly was one of those choices,
0: you know. Um, yeah.
1: I mean, and also, you know, I'm I'm always a a big believer in, you know, opportunity and preparation, being ready for when an opportunity, particularly as like a talking to like as a musician, you know, really it applies to anything, but we're talking to music here, you know, seeing an opportunity and being ready, being prepared for that opportunity, but then making a decision whether you're going to take it or not, you know, Mm -hmm. so like with the band, you know i came to new york thinking like i want to do i want to be a jazz drummer i want to be a studio drummer and i want to be in a famous rock band you know because yeah. i've always equally been influenced by people that did all those things You know, like yeah. bonham band guy tony williams elvin jones jazz guys you know bernard purdy steve gad studio guys right i wanted to be all those guys yeah um, but and so what so when i came to new york i was sort of open to all that and really wanted to accomplish all those But the spin doctors presented itself and i quickly was like you know this is a cool band i i can see some real potential here um quickly i saw that that um it was fun to play with these guys and that people liked it you know we were getting a response so i said to myself you know what this is worth pursuing for a couple years Mm -hmm. and um but if it's not going anywhere after a year or two I got to bow out and and move on. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, you can, you can very quickly wake up in a situation five years later. And especially when you're young and like, you know, you missed all these opportunities. So like, yeah, I think it's important. And I made a conscious decision that I was going to give the band like a a year or two and see what happened. And then, you know, it did well, obviously. So, but I think it's important, like, you know, to, to like, you know, think about the decisions you make and be, and really be ready for them. Like, you know, and for me, the preparation was all that, lessons and practice and all that stuff i did up until up until i moved to new york um and felt ready for something you know um Mm -hmm. and again that 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 continues on and on it never ends but yeah you know you you got to be you got to be ready for it
0: yeah sure um and now now i actually have a bunch of other questions um so i i have wondered about this a lot and I wonder about it with all sorts of bands, but I have not had the opportunity to talk with someone like you who was in a situation where, uh, you know, I've known lots of bands that got record deals, but nothing ever happened. You guys got a deal eventually, as you were describing. These things started to happen, and boom, the it became a hit record, etc. Um, what what was the experience for like for you, like personally, when when fame? came your way when when fame came to the band and I would imagine probably in a way far bigger than you expected um and and also when the money started to come in um how, how did that affect you and and did it affect band dynamics in any way
1: um you know it was exciting you know I mean I think the you know I mean it, it's, it's funny because looking back on it now when you start talking like years like 88 and band formed and like we got our record deal in 90 and the record really didn't pop until like 92. but that is that is fast yeah but when you're like when you're 20 yeah I mean, that's that seems like an eternity yeah. you know and 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 everybody was like the record came out of nowhere and blew up but again it was out for well over a year before anybody even knew anything about it so mm-hmm. for us at the time it it, it kind of seemed like a slow build just when you're in it it's different than when you're looking yeah uh, sure yeah so it was like, you know, we were, we were doing well in the local scene in New York. So you start to get used to like a lot of people at your shows. And then, you know, you go from Nightingale and before you know it, you're packing the wetlands and then you're traveling around the country. And first time around, there's five people there then there's a hundred then there's 500. And you know, before you know it, you're selling out the theater in Albany. And then yeah. before you know it, you're playing the, the shed there in Albany or whatever. So yeah, it, it was sort of like this gradual you know transition from clubs to theaters to to sheds um so in a weird way it felt sort of natural at the time it was just like oh this is just what's happening and this is like the right order of progressions you know you're sort of young and you know you're Mm -hmm. confident and everything's going well and um but at the same time it was is a little trippy you know especially when things really blew up and it was like you know you're full-on like you know cover rolling stone and all over mtv and being recognized on the street and and that you know it was it was fun though it was fun because Mm -hmm. it was it was a dream come true you know what i mean so like for me it was i really enjoyed it um i really had a good time with it it felt pretty natural to me um i got a pretty good clear head on my shoulders so like it didn't fuck me up i'm you know i've never been into like drugs or alcohol too much so i wasn't you know i was clean Mm -hmm. there was nothing there to like sort of like screw me up you know um but I will tell you that it definitely caused a lot of internal pressure on the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was like, I think that like when we were at our peak of like, you know, things we were playing our biggest shows and the dynamic in the band was not necessarily so good. And it was yeah. great. It was really great in the early days. And that whole sort of rise up, like going through theaters and the horde tour, and that was amazing. And then when things got really big, it got tense in the band you know, i don't yeah. want to blame anybody i mean you're sure. young and it's uh personalities are different um but it got tense and ultimately led to you know a, a band change you know i mean eric wasn't in the band for a while you know and and uh obviously years later we were all back together mm-hmm. but and but you know yeah i think it i think it, it was for me it was great and it was really fun but i think overall if you look at the you know the the bigger picture of the band it, it wasn't great <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> you
1: know, yeah it was yeah. tough and it was tense and yeah. uh and ultimately it you know for whatever reason it did split up the band for a while you know i don't you know i don't, don't want to say it split up the band but you know personalities personality conflicts along with the pressure of of that you know led to a temporary split
0: yeah and then so the so okay so another question would be um A band like you has uh, a remarkable success, you know, it's it's not. I mean, if you just run the numbers, not very many bands get to achieve the level of success that you guys uh, achieved. But then, you you know, Pachelorette Kryptonite is a is a huge hit. So for you guys, what 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 happened next? Like you get you get done with all of the major touring for Pachelorette Kryptonite um I had heard that you guys were pretty exhausted by the time all that ended um yeah, I mean, and can I only imagine that that's true
1: yeah I mean we we had been touring for about three years because you gotta yeah. remember the first year year and a half was just touring without the record doing anything so then when the record finally took off and all of a sudden you had the record company behind us there was a whole two years of touring behind that and and all over the world now because it was blowing up all over the world so again it was a dream come true you know but it was a lot of work and a lot of touring so when we finally got to the end of that run like at the end of 93 I guess we took six months off and then we uh got back together and we made a second record you know we made the turn it upside down record and that started out great the vibe was really good I think everybody was rejuvenated after a break and uh you know the record was good and it really was not a big success i mean by normal standards it was it sold two million records you know yeah (laughs) Yeah, right i know kryptonite had sold like close to 10 around the world so and you know we didn't really have a big hit on it and um so it was it was considered a flop you know and it was so the morale was tough and although the tour was still really good we went out and did a big summer tour you know that's when the that's when the vibe got really bad in the band and that's when eric left you know sort of at the end of that tour like around you know we did woodstock and things were tense at woodstock and we had a big summer tour and we were going out to play with the, we were going to go open for the rolling stones which was awesome which we did but unfortunately eric didn't do it with us because he wasn't in the band anymore so we did it with anthony in mm-hmm. the band for a while and that was great we had a great time but you know looking back on it you wish you wish you would have been able to keep the original guys intact you know um, yeah but you know that's the way it goes you know yeah that's the that's the that's the unfortunate nature of the record businesses uh and i think you know by the time the 90s rolled around you didn't see as much sort of like you know back when we were growing up i remember seeing bands like when i was a kid like in the 70s and even in the 80s you know the record companies seem to stick with bands a lot longer. there would be artist development and they bands would put out a record every year. And, you know, maybe it would take three or four records for them to have a hit, but eventually it would, it would. And, but in the nineties, it, it sort of turned into a thing. And you, and you know this because any any people, like you mentioned, a lot of people, we all have lots of friends, this band's got a record deal, and if their first record didn't do well, that was it. It was over. Yeah, it wasn't like exactly. the 70s or 80s where, you know, you got a few chances. It wasn't like, like come on, man. you right. know Actual artist case, development. Yeah, in our case, we were lucky because our first record was a hit. Yeah. So from a financial point of view, it was great because we didn't know the record company millions of dollars. Like most, the, the downside of all these bands in the 70s and 80s was by the time they finally had their hit, they were millions of dollars in the hole because they made five yeah. records. Yeah, right. Yeah, they yeah, were yeah. Like, they're all like, where's our money? So we were very fortunate in that regard that we, you know, we never owed them. And we didn't spend a shitload of money from the record company. We were self-sufficient. We didn't spend a ton of money to make that record either. So we did well with that. Um, but you would hope that, like you know, the second record, well, it sells, it sells two million. You would, you would kind of hope you'd get a little more support. But they, but in that day, it was sort of like, no hit. Well, that's it. And so you know, the, it was the support from the label really quickly faded. Yeah, um, and, that, and that was disappointing. I remember and hard to hard to deal with at the time because it was sort of like, wow. I mean, we we just made you guys millions of dollars, you know, <laughs> and uh, and like that's it you know what I mean so it was a little bit sort of like wow that's okay well there you go you know
0: yeah yeah and and but (laughs) yeah I I I actually am curious to know I have a question about that but and but you guys did and then you you did do one more record for epic right yeah
1: yeah we did a record with with Anthony called you gotta believe in something yeah and he produced it and it was a total flop right they put out no support whatsoever um total flop
0: sorry I, I just uh had to answer a question quick. So well. we'll just do some professional editing here and get that. <laughs> um, okay. So, yeah. So my question actually is um, you, I mean, you seem genuinely to be an extremely grounded and, uh, and pretty, you know, just generally kind of together and, and fairly contented human being. And you also seem like the kind of person who uh, might be able to handle things like that happening in your life, because you, as you said, you wanted to be a professional musician. And I can, I can imagine that you in your mind, you're, you're, you're not thinking this is the massive existential moment here for me. My life is over, you know, any chance of being a professional musician is over because your identity was so closely tied to the band or whatever. Um, But I do want to ask, what was it like for you as you started to kind of see that ride coming to an end, you know, after the, Again, you're right. Massive success of the second album, but as far as commercially, the label was concerned, whatever. And then the third album, and then eventually you guys were off epic. Yeah. Uh, how did you personally kind of go through that process? And and did it? Was it really bad for the band? Was it bad for Chris? And was it bad, for, you know, to think, oh, you know, maybe the Spin Doctors are over, like, for real, or did you always have in the back of your mind that you might still exist in some form?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was it was a little bit of a tough pill to swallow at, at the time, but I also, like, I kind of always realized, you know, being having that sort of professional musician attitude and seeing, having friends that had been through it before me, and I always felt really grateful, you know, to have had what we had, and I always sort of realized, like, you know the the ch- chances are this isn't going to stay at this level forever you know mm-hmm. chances are i realized like when we were at the peak of that i remember yeah. having a conversation i remember like having conversations with people saying like you know it'd be great if this continued but like chances are it's not so like i gotta be smart here i'm not gonna be one of these people that like spends all my money and like you know you gotta i sort of realized what was up mm-hmm. um and so, you know, so it wasn't really that big of a deal, you know, it was sort of like, you know, what I kind of expected, but but it's disappointing. Um, and, and you know, it's like you just go, you know, like anything, you, you go through those ups and downs. I don't think we, I think at the time we didn't really know if there was going to be a feature of the band because the band had sort of split apart. You know, Eric wasn't yeah. in, Anthony was in, then we decided, then we sort of disbanded again. And we, you know, and it wasn't really until until the wetlands closed and asked us i got a call from uh pete shapiro asking Mm -hmm. me asking to see if i could get their four original guys back together to be one of the last shows at the venue and that was really the thing that got us back together i called everybody i hadn't talked to mark or eric in a few years you know me and chris had remained close um and i called them up and they were super cool and everybody was into it and uh and we had a great gig and we've been, you know, going sort of, you know, that was sort of a slow start after that, but we've, we've been back together ever since then. So, you know, if you look at like the 33 year history of the band, it's really just a small period that we weren't all together as the four of us, you know? Yeah. And, and as, as time goes on, here we are, you know, it's 2021. I mean, it's been 30 years since pocket full of kryptonite came out, you know, this yeah. August coming up in like a month I it'll know. be the 30th anniversary. And, you know, all that sort of, any of the negative stuff that happened personality-wise or career-wise from overexposure to ups and downs, all that stuff sort of goes away after thir- after that long, you know? And it's like people yeah. sort of, it's like enough time goes by, people remember all the good things they liked about you. And so now it's like, our shows are awesome, you know? Like mm-hmm. we, we get great crowds and it's also really cool because... There's all these young people that are at our shows, you know, that have maybe rediscovered us from the radio, or maybe their parents were like are bringing their kids, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and, and really, there's no none of that sort of negative stuff that was certainly there for a while. Like, oh, those guys aren't cool, or they sold out. Or, you know, all the bullshit. Are they a yeah. jam band or they a pop band? You know, right. None of that even exists anymore. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. just all that's just all bullshit chatter that you go through when you're sort of in the middle of the the hype machine and um ultimately that stuff fades away and people either like you or they don't and it's no big deal so like so we're so like it's all you know so we got through any of that stuff that you're mentioning and and uh here we are today you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so (laughs) it's funny though you know and um and i'm grateful because i think we're one of the few bands out there that is the original four members you know mm-hmm. you don't there's a lot of bands that are out there touring still and um it's nice that it's the four guys you know
0: yeah yeah i mean there's some bands out there touring that don't even have the original lead singer they're just a group of musicians and yeah,
1: yeah. They just original anybody. Uh, I don't don't even think Mick Jones shows up half the time, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they sound fucking better than ever. It's (laughs) so funny
0: because uh, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I interviewed, um, Dave Agar, who's a cellist, a really amazing cellist. And he's, he's on, he's on the road with foreigner as part of the, of the, you know, the sort of musical director, uh, duo out there. And he was talking about Mick Jones and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, but but yeah, I mean, I think it's wonderful. I mean, I, I will say this: like going back, going back to the pocketful of kryptonite record. You know, even uh, even on a song like Two Princes, not only is there just so much great stuff going on with the, with the part you're playing and with the bass line and Chris's vocals and everything, but Eric contributes some really really lovely guitar parts on that song and some nice little hooks and stuff. And and that was one of those one of those songs and certainly the album that that just sort of made me think like this is a unit that that works incredibly well together and so it's great to see that you guys are are back in you know in full yeah, form I, mean,
1: I think that that song is a great example of us really at our best because it's just i mean there's very minimal overdubs on that if you listen to it it's basically it's basically just bass guitar and drums and a vocal there's a little bit of background vocals at the end you know, it's and it, you know, it's one of the reasons why I think it sounds so good and so big. There's just not a lot of stuff on there. You know, yeah. And that's that's always sort of been our our. I think what, what works best for us. You know, when when we when we sort of find our niche, come up with the right part, and and uh, don't try to get too. Uh, you know. Yeah, I I I, I want to just take one second to just
0: completely indulge myself. Um, and I know I I sent you a mes- message about it. Um, the the thing that you do with the when you're when you're hitting a tom and you're hitting the hi hat, a sort of open hi hat at the same time, is such a great. It's just a beautiful thing to do with the drum set that I I don't think I ever heard in my life before. I saw you play it or heard you play it. Um, is that something that? Where you where you you're hitting not just cymbals and then hitting toms, but you're actually hitting this the hi hat and the tom simultaneously.
1: Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Like, like, oh, yeah. That's like a Roy Haynes thing, actually. Is that what that is? Okay, Okay. a lot. Great jazz drummer. He does this thing where he's doing. He does that thing between his his left hand. And uh, I totally got that from him. Oh, okay. Uh, But yeah, I think you're probably referring to like, uh, what time is it? Like, yes, the The, the, the sort of triplet ish. But i love uh, the, i love that vibe it's a cool sound but that's a total roy haynes thing that's interesting that's like, Well, I, I still
0: it. okay so you got it from roy haynes i got it from you because i still do it sometimes and i when i did the yeah. when i did the, i played drums on low favors new record on one of the tunes i did it i was like oh this song absolutely calls for it and i thought
1: about you i was like oh, i'm totally lifting this um <laughs> uh but that's nice to hear. And that's how we listen, man. We all live from each other, you know, and it, and it ends up sounding like yourself. I mean, that's yeah that's the whole deal. It's like this, this language that we're all changing as we go and taking from each other and uh, making it on our own. And that's the beauty of it, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, 100%. Uh, and I love it. Um, I have two quick questions to ask before, uh, before we get to the end of our conversation here. One of them, Ooh. just because I'm curious, is, is when did you start playing? Uh, when did you come to Yamaha Drums?
1: I pl- I bought a Yamaha kit when I was 16 in high school. It's my black Recording Series kit that I bought basically because of Steve Gadd. I still have that kit, and in fact, that's the kit that I've been using on the road. So, like all summer long, okay, that's the kit that's going to be there. And but I recently Yamaha sent me the new Recording Series kit, which they made, which are beautiful. But I about I guess it was about 15 years, 10 or 15 years ago. I had never, I never really endorsed drums. I always, I always endorsed cymbals and sticks and heads. But I used, you know, because I liked Brady so much back then, and I used Bradys, and they're a small. They were, they're no longer making drums, but they're a very small company out of Australia. Yeah. And although, although they've been really good to me, they couldn't offer full dr- endorsements. And they didn't right. have drums in ev- everywhere to to supply kits. You know, right. so you know when we were on the on the road, I would just bring my Brady kit. But as things once we got into like the 2000s and mostly spin doctors we do more and even with other artists i play with like joan osborne and different people i work with most of the gigs i do are fly dates it's rare that we go on get a bus and leave for three months we do Mm -hmm. more like fly out of town for a couple gigs come back fly we fly back and forth from new york that's how we do it and it's it's nice yeah um but in most cases i need to have a drum kit supplied from a company Mm -hmm. Um, just so it just goes. Luckily, this summer our crew is actually driving to every show, so I get to use my own stuff, which is great. But so about fifteen years ago, so I, I had been using Yamaha on my rider anyway. Whenever we asked for drums, when you need a
0: backline or whatever. We
1: always just put Yamaha because they're really consistent drums. They always sound good. They're easy to tune, and I love them. So I finally, I was like, you know what, I should just endorse them. So I, I, I reached out, and I've mm. been an, I've been an endorser with them for. Probably 15 years now, and and they're they're a great company. Their their drums are phenomenal, and I have that history with them because I you know I'm, again I'm still playing the kit that I bought when I was a kid. Yeah, which is awesome. It sounds so good, and it's like a, you know it feels like going home when you play that kit that you basically learned. Yeah, to play drums on, you know? sure. Yeah, Oh, that's great. I mean, I I I had
0: I mean I have I have uh, a, a small like a three piece Yamaha Maple Custom kit, the yeah. original gold lug, really beautiful that's not going anywhere that's in my studio yeah. and i have a couple other really nice kits that i record with and stuff and i just hate i i got tired of the idea of dragging them out on the road yeah. and uh so i bought a yamaha stage custom birch kit
1: oh cool Those which was great. like
0: Well, yeah it was like 700 bucks and it came it's a five-piece kit with a with a snare and it sounds great i was i mean the the build quality the the hardware of course the yamaha hardware is awesome but i just was absolutely floored by how good they sounded out of the box with
1: chinese factory heads you know that's that's the that's one of the things that i really like about yamaha is they're just so easy to get sounding good like other drums some drums it's like you're just struggling with the tuning and the heads and and I've always just found Yamaha to be like you throw a head on them and they sound good. <laughs> so yeah. you know it, that's that's they're just they're great and they yeah. they're you know they they're they're a great company. They can supply a drum kit anywhere in the world. So they've been they've been really great. That's awesome.
0: Um, okay, so last question is just um, you said that you guys are in the early stages. So are you write, uh, is are Spin Doctors writing uh, writing for the record now? playing together to, to start structuring songs and things like that, doing some pre-production kind of stuff or.
1: Yeah, we just did, uh, like our first writing demo session. We sort of broke off in different groups. I got together with Chris and wrote a few things. Chris and Eric got together and wrote a few things. Me and Chris and Eric got together and wrote a few things. Mark's been in Portland. So he sent us a few things and then we went, we did some demos, just really rough demos um but we got like nine new songs so we're the you know we're what i consider the beginning stages of the writing process and you know we're gonna we're gonna get together sometime this summer and do another like week of week of writing and demoing and and you know we'll get to a point where we have 20 songs or so and see where we're at and and once we feel like we uh we're happy with the album's worth of material we'll we'll go in the studio and make a record you know so we're getting, we're getting fantastic we got some really cool new songs you know and we're gonna and we're starting to do you know we're gonna sort of bust a few of them out live this summer too because you know there's no better way to get something together than playing it in front of people and seeing what works yeah and we, did one, we did one of them at our at a show in Vermont a few weeks ago that went over great so um you know it's the beginning of the process but I I think that uh if all goes well we'll we'll definitely have a, a new record out sometime next year that's really exciting. I hope
0: I can come and see you guys somewhere. I, I, I would love to see you guys play again. Are you, uh, this summer? Where are you up?
1: You're up in Albany?
0: Basically I live near Saratoga. So North, of oh, you know,
1: we're playing the Brooklyn bowl. It's not announced yet, but i it's January 15th. Okay. Um, and then we're also playing at this, that city winery, Hudson Valley. That's probably not too oh, far. Oh
0: yeah. Yeah. No, no, not at all.
1: Yeah. We're playing there on, let's see here. Uh, October 26th. Oh, so that's coming up. I mean, not that long. Yeah. A few months you know, from so now. They have that outdoor thing that I did I actually just played there last week with John Osborne. They have like a nice outdoor uh, long kind of thing they're doing out there. So, but yeah, so that's pretty close to you. So that, yeah. that or Brooklyn ball would be your best yeah. bet. And let me know. I'll, I'll totally set you up, man.
0: Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, that's, I, I'll be there. I'll be at one of them for sure. Um, yeah. Cool. Okay. So. I, I, I just want to say, Aaron, thank you so much for your time and uh, for talking with me today about, about spin doctors in your life. And I'm just really grateful to have you on the show.
1: Well, Ted, thanks for reaching out. And uh, it was a pleasure chatting with you. And hopefully I'll see you uh, see you live and in person sometime in the next near future. Yeah, I would love that too. All right, All right. take care. You too, buddy. Kai <laughs> Kai
0: this episode was produced and edited by yours truly. Big thank you to Aaron Comas. A little bit famous theme music by the amazing Jay Darius. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll see you next week.